Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thank you so much for being here. Today we have a really, really great story, a really inspiring story. I am interviewing Ed Cressy, and we're going to hear how he went from once being arrested by the FBI to receiving an FBI Citizens Award. And we're going to hear, obviously, from one side of it to the other. And, you know, it, it's a story of redemption. It's a story of, of drug addiction and addiction as a whole and how he recovered and how he overcame that and how he's now inspiring others. So whether you are struggling with addiction, you've struggled with addiction before, um, or you know someone who is or has, it, it's a really, really inspiring story. Um, he's going to, to tell you about his experience. It's not necessarily like anyone else's, but at least you're going to hear his experience, some um, advice that he gives to, to others struggling or advice he gives to people who are are trying their best to, to help someone who else is who is struggling. It's a, a really, really great interview. It's a really powerful interview. It was really, really inspiring to hear his story and how he overcame. So I hope that you will enjoy uh, listening to this and you will learn something just like I did. So without further ado, here is my interview with Ed Cressy. All right, I'm here today with Ed Cressy. Ed, thanks so much for joining us. How are you? I'm great, Jackson. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Absolutely. Well, I think the attention-grabbing headline, you were once arrested by the FBI and then went and got a uh, community service award from the FBI, which is a, a really interesting story, I'm sure. So if you would, let's just kind of start with the beginning, how uh, your childhood, your, your growing up, and, and what led you to I guess the, the first part of that statement. Yeah, Jackson, my childhood was idyllic in many ways. I grew up in the woods of beautiful central Massachusetts. Great people living here, a wonderful area for a kid to grow up until a kid, or a kid like me anyway, turns, I don't know, 13 or so, and then the idyllic uh, country setting turns into extreme restlessness, boredom. It didn't help that I was just a weird kid growing up. I was never good at sports. I was very uncoordinated. Reading always held much greater allure than sports or athletics or social interactions. Escapes into worlds of fantasy were always far more attractive than the immediate realities. Uh, I was very sensitive, would cry easily when the teachers yelled or the bus driver pulled over, when the other school kids got too rowdy on the school bus. So where I went to high school, as you might imagine, reading, crying, and being uncoordinated, that was not exactly a campaign platform upon which you might run for class president, yeah. is how I like to put it. The first thing I ever felt good at, well, there were two things really I felt good at. One was writing. I remember there were a couple of times when the teacher in English class would read aloud a story I had written or would call me to the front of the class to read aloud something that I had created. 
those couple of times were the first times I remember feeling good about myself in that I could bring value to the world around me. I remember one of the kids who would bully me out on the playground came up and instead of punching me like he might otherwise do, he clapped me on the shoulder, congratulating me because he liked my story. Mm. Writing was one of the first things I felt good at. That's where I developed the dream to become a writer, to publish a book. That dream developed very early on. Unfortunately, at age 14, I found what appeared to be a quicker, easier path to developing those feelings of self-worth and the positive interactions with my peers. That quicker, easier way, drinking. Mm. At age 14, I got drunk for the first time. I was in a wedding reception. I was, uh, I was a uh, uh, part of a, I wasn't part of the reception itself, but I was a guest at my aunt and uncle's wedding in the beautiful town, the beautiful city of Brooklyn, New York. I was in a, a new place out of the woods of Massachusetts in the big city, surrounded by these exotic people who were my relatives, but to me they were exotic because I hadn't met them before. I was just being exposed to uh, new, all new things as part of that, I was exposed to a bottle of champagne and a porno movie. My cousin, I had this worldly cousin. He was the opposite of me in every way. This kid was 14 like I was, but my cousin had swagger. You know, he was like a, a mini Don Johnson from Miami Vice with, uh, with a Brooklyn accent. Whereas in that wedding reception, I really didn't feel like I fit in with my family. They were, people were laughing at jokes I didn't understand and, and I just didn't fit in. But when I had that bottle of champagne and watching that porno movie with my cousin and his friend at an upstairs apartment, to this day, I still remember the plot line of that porno movie. And you can make your own joke about porno movies and plot lines, you know. <laughs> I still remember some, uh, I, I remember remarks that my cousin's friend said, you know, I don't really remember anything I talked to uh, anything I talked about with my other family members at the wedding reception itself, but drinking that purloin champagne, watching that porno movie, I, I felt like I was finally, or one of the first times I finally felt accepted. It was a similar feeling as when I read the story aloud in my English class. From there at age 16, I took a summer in San Francisco. I spent the summer in San Francisco. My uncle took me in. I lived with his family, became a very, very heavy drinker. Almost every night of the week was at it with the Royal Gate vodka, the cigarettes in a park or somewhere outdoors, just feeling like I was part of the world around me in a way that I never had. I learned how to lift weights that same summer, so I developed confidence in myself. And for your audience, when we look at addiction, at least, at least the way I was taught, what we like to do is examine the root causes. Because when it comes to addiction, Putting aside the addictive behavior is only the first step. We, we need to think about, or what, what your suggestion is, if you're thinking about addiction, your own or someone you love, is to think about the recovery process. Ceasing addictive behavior is, is a necessary step for many of us, yet it's only the first step or, or one of the first steps along the path of recovery. The point is, when we examine the root causes, for me, for example, I look back and see that the drinking I was doing, which led to heavy cocaine use, which eventually led to methamphetamine and my complete downfall, 
I look at those root causes and I say, you know, hey, I never pursued my dream of being a writer. I never applied discipline. I never applied perseverance. I never developed the confidence in myself to pursue my dream of being a writer. Therefore, the alcohol, the marijuana, the cocaine, the ecstasy, the meth, the rest of it, that substituted for my dream. When I got free from drugs in 2007, after a devastating 20-year, just a, an avalanche of intoxicants, during the course of those 20 years, I threw away my career in biotechnology. I threw away a beautiful home I owned in San Francisco. I threw away my life savings. I lost my beloved dog. I mean, I could go on and on. The, the, the point is, all the things of a material nature really didn't mean that much. So I threw them away to drugs. What, did, what I found was of value was pursuing that dream, that dream of being a writer. And it connects to spirituality, my dream of writing, I finally discovered tied into a, a strong desire to serve a higher purpose, which manifests in serving others, helping other persons, serving a, a form of a, a spiritual, uh, you know, exploring forms of spirituality. So I, I realize I'm going on and on uh, in response to very straightforward questions starting in my childhood. But this is basically, uh, you know, I went from, uh, it's like the old story of uh, Park Avenue to the park bench. You know, Penn State to the state pen. Um, I, I just had so many opportunities presented in life. And it's important, I think, for your audience to understand that many of my opportunities came, were unfair. I got a lot of unfair advantages because of, let's face it, my skin color, which is white. My socioeconomic background, which is privileged. Society gave me all these unfair advantages, which allowed me to continue my path of breaking the law, abusing drugs, uh, still making a lot of money and doing things like owning a home. It, it all ties together with in, 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 in what you started our conversation with Jackson was talking about the FBI Community Service Award. See, when I realized my dream of being a writer, when I realized a pursuit of spirituality of being in service to others, when I realized that I could use these unfair advantages society gave me to serve incarcerated persons, to serve others who were struggling with addiction, who didn't have the advantages that I had. Okay, now I have a way. So I don't need, quote unquote, need drugs anymore. Now I've found a way to believe in myself. I've found value. I've found, found a life worth living. And to your listeners, you know, we all struggle with addiction or we know someone who, who does. We struggle with addictions to drugs, to alcohol, to watching the news, to, uh, to working, to anger, to frustration. You know, we can be addicted to many things. And our definitions of addiction, there are so many different definitions of addiction. What hopefully your audience gets from my story, and I'm more than happy to touch upon the real depths that, that I sunk to, which, which were pretty, pretty low. What hopefully your audience gets is a sense that there is hope. There, are possibilities to escape even the most dire seeming circumstances. Whatever path you choose out of your addiction, you can choose a path that leads you not only to ceasing that addictive behavior, but to living your best life, yeah. being your best self, to pursuing your dreams. And that I found is what it's all about. Right. Yeah. And you answered several of my questions. So, I mean, my, my next question was going to be, I guess, exactly what your addiction was. And it sounds like from what I, from what I'm gathering, it's it was alcohol and and maybe methamphetamine at towards the end. Yeah, Jackson, what do you got? <laughs> you know, that was basically 
anything that would really take me out of myself. Uh, your, your, uh, meth, the final devastating 11 years was methamphetamine. I began snorting meth. I, it's just, it's just ridiculous thing, but I did so much cocaine that it just got, the cocaine got much too hard on me. I, I would do so much cocaine, my, my heart was gonna explode or I would lie in bed paranoid every night after a binge, waiting for my heart to explode. The, the blood throbbing in, in my in my head, so there was my, my heart was revolting, and I was just, I knew I was going to have a heart attack, or I I believed I was. Then on the outside, the police were coming. In my paranoid cocaine fantasies, the police were circling in helicopters, about to rappel down the side of my apartment and smash through the windows and drag me off, and, and I was sunk in this insane or this intense paranoia about my heart stopping and the police coming in, the cocaine. And when I said ridiculous, what I meant was my ridiculous decision was that since the cocaine was so hard on me, you know what, I'll switch to meth. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's silly to, to, to talk about it, but these are the, the brilliant ideas that a person like me sunk into an addiction has. Yeah, it could, the problem's not drugs, the problem's I'm doing the wrong kind of drug. Yeah, yeah. so I'll switch from coke to meth and that'll make everything all right. Well, like many bright ideas that I would have on the surface or in some ways, yeah, maybe it made things all right. But methamphetamine eventually took me to a point of true psychosis, whereas the cocaine, the psychosis would come only at the depths of a binge, four in the morning after snorting an incredible amount of coke. That's when the paranoia would come with the meth. I developed a form of paranoid schizophrenia, I believe that meth psychosis is similar to paranoid schizophrenia. What that means is I would hear disembodied voices all the time. They sounded just like my family, like my friends, like celebrities, like people I knew. They were, they sounded like outlaw, uh, organized crime, persons from organized crime. They would threaten to kidnap and torture me to death. They would harass me at all times. I would see planes and helicopters following me. I mean, there were actual planes and helicopters in the sky. I don't, don't imagine they were actually following me. Mm-hmm. I came to believe that I had inadvertently befriended a 9-11 hijacker. This, this was what had happened. In reality, I had gone to Bangkok, Thailand in 2004. I was into the sport of kickboxing. I, I would do a lot of kickboxing, compete as an amateur. I trained in Bangkok for a little while. I met an actual guy there. He was a friend of mine. He looked a little bit like one of these, uh, one of the 9-11 hijackers. Uh, from there, when the meth psychosis really kicked in, I became convinced that that guy, my friend from Bangkok, had been one of the hijackers, or he had been an undercover Mossad operative having infiltrated the hijacker teams, and the FBI was trying to cover it up because uh, you know they were trying to silence me because I knew too much. I mean, I go on and on with these stories to illustrate to your audience the fact that I never set out doing a line of meth when I was 19 years old, planning to sink into psychosis at age 33. You know, I never started partying when I was 16 or 17 or, or however old I was. I never started along a path that I figured would get me to this meth psychosis where I believe the FBI had architected a global conspiracy against me. In no way am I advocating that anyone in your your audience does or does not make her or his own choices. The what may be of, of value to your audience is to consider 
the, although my story takes things to an extreme, I was in jail. I one day woke up naked on the floor of a padded cell. The police had stripped me uh, because I refused to cooperate after I broke into my relative's home to steal for meth money. These stories, hopefully your audience can use to think through, well, hey, you know, you, the audience, you're never going to be in psychosis, probably. You're never going to be stripped naked and thrown in a padded cell. Yet, is it worth you considering what drug use or what any behavior leading to addiction might be taking away from your life? And maybe it's nothing, or maybe the trade-off is worth it to you. I don't have the answers. Only you do. What my role is, is to help you when and if I can, just by sharing what happened to me. Maybe something of my story resonates with you. If not, at least you have the story of Ed Cressy to discard in favor of what does make more sense to you. Yeah. So where, I mean, obviously when, when people are really deep in, in the depths of, of their addiction, I'm sure the, the outside world and friends and family, that doesn't necessarily matter in it. All that matters is to get to that next, I guess that next high. Uh, but where, where was your friends and family? Were they, were they supportive or had you kind of just written them off and, and kind of made it really difficult? Cause I do know it's very difficult for families that are struggling with someone, you know, else in the family with, with addiction. Yeah. It's, it's often just as hard, if not harder on the family than it is on the addicted person. You know, for, for me, when I was in my addiction, at least I had the addiction to escape to, at least I had the, the meth to tamp down the pain. My family, didn't have that. So I imagine it was just as hard on my family, if not harder than it was on me because of my poor choices and my bad decisions. The, to, to get back to your question, one challenge in my case is the nature of addiction, at least in my case and maybe in the case of others, is that it will convince us that those closest to us are actually out to do us in. It will convince us that those closest to us are out to get us. Oftentimes, when we're at the point of addiction, we're using it because we have a lot of negativity towards ourselves. For me, I was always that bullied kid on the playground. I was always the person who never pursued his dream of being a writer. I was always a selfish, privileged white guy who would never use the advantages society gave me in service to others. In my subconscious, at least I was always these things. And many whom I've heard from in, uh, in recovery say similar things. We just don't feel comfortable in our own skin. We feel like everybody else has been given an instruction book to life, but we weren't. We harbor resentments. And the resentments are oftentimes they're, they're about ourselves and we project them to the world around us. So for your audience, if you're, uh, if you're, my heart goes out to you, if someone you love is struggling with addiction, one of the challenges is the person may very well blame you because of the nature of addiction, the, the resentments that sh- your family member has about herself or himself are projected to you. Another thing to remember, this is something I didn't realize until I was in recovery for a while. Imagine if my heart wasn't working properly. Let's say, uh, you know, a, a valve in my heart wasn't, wasn't, uh, wasn't working the way it should. I approached my family and said, hey, could you perform open heart surgery on me and fix my heart valve? My family would want to help me. They honestly would. 
but if my family tried to perform surgery on me, it, it would do me serious harm and them serious harm. It's an extreme example, but addiction in some ways is like that. Unless we, the addicted people, get the kind of help that is, is like to help the person with the heart condition needs, meaning specialized help by people who know exactly uh, or have very strong ideas and, and experience with the problems, it's going to be like uh, my family member performing heart surgery on me. It's not because they don't want to help. It's because they don't necessarily have the tools. Now, my family and what my family did, ultimately, a family could pay for a heart surgeon, which is what happened when I was ready to accept help. My family paid not for a heart surgeon, but for me to go to rehab and to, to do other things uh, to, to get on the path to recovery. So if you're a family member, keep in mind that the most obvious solution is usually the wrong solution, <laughs> which means the obvious solution from your perspective as a family member and possibly from the perspective of the addicted person in your life, the obvious solution is quit doing drugs, quit drinking, quit gambling, quit the addictive behavior and then things will be fine. Even when I was struggling with addiction, I convinced myself that was true. Hey, you know what? I'm gonna stop smoking meth tomorrow and then tomorrow or the next day things will be fine. When we are struggling with addiction, when we quit drugs, it makes things worse, not better, at least initially. Because going back earlier, we were talking about the root causes. Drugs or, and other addictive behaviors are ways uh, are to address root causes. Drugs for an addicted person are usually not our problem. Drugs are our attempt at a solution. And the same may be, might, may be very well be true for other addictive behaviors. Our problem is not excess social media. Our problem is not workaholism. Our problem is not watching too much of the television news. These things are our solutions. Our problem is usually, is often addressed by looking at the root causes. So, you know, for me, drugs, they dulled the pain. I didn't have to think about it. I was never a writer. I didn't think, have to think about it. I never achieved my dreams. All of a sudden, uh, I, I'm surrounded. I, there are FBI helicopters and FBI conspiracies in my family. I'm, you know, the most important person in the world in my methamphetamine delusions. So the, the, my dream of having been a writer and actually doing something in reality that was important, quote unquote important, meaning pursue my dream of, of bringing something. Well, now I don't have to do that because in my meth psychosis, I'm saving the world from the forces of uh, some government evil conspiracy that I'd invented in my, in my, uh, in my delusions, in my psychosis. So the, the point is, you know, recall or, or keep in mind, your, your suggestion is, if you're a supporter, if you're a family member and someone's struggling with addiction, remember the addiction, the, the addictive behavior is often not the problem. It's the attempt at a solution. When we quit the addictive behavior, we need a better solution. And what that better solution is, that's usually what we find or at least what we see through the process of recovery. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So if you would tell us, I think you, I mean, you've already touched on it and it's such a, a big part of your story later on once you, you did find that, uh, that recovery. Tell us a little bit more about, um, you know, how the FBI played a role in your life as an addict and, and maybe some of that paranoia. Yeah, well, first of all, I'd love to, I would like to say I'm so grateful to the FBI and to so many women and men in law enforcement who 
helped me out of all the help I received to turn my life around. Some of the most meaningful came from our sisters and brothers who are or were incarcerated. And some of the most meaningful came from women and men who are in law enforcement. So it's a, it's a paradox, but it's true. I'm very grateful to the FBI for giving me that second chance. It came about thanks in large part to the FBI being willing to consider giving someone like me who served time a second chance. It's ironic because, or maybe irony is not the right word, that what I discovered is just because you're done with drugs doesn't necessarily mean drugs are done with you. Mm-hmm. Ties into the theme we were talking about earlier about quitting the addictive behavior is not the, is, is only one step. Right. The psychosis, the schizophrenia-like condition, the paranoia, that didn't stop when I put away the glass pipe in 2007. From 2007 onward, I continued to hear these disembodied voices. I continued to believe that the FBI was steps away from smashing down my door and dragging me to some prison cell buried under a mile of rock under a mountain somewhere, uh, setting me up to take the fall for a 9-11. I continued to believe these things for years and years and years. I continued to see planes following me. I would see pictures of myself in uh, the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, like doctored pictures of me I would see in in magazines and on the internet, uh, in, in textbooks even. What I discovered was that society affords opportunities even for someone like me to have a second chance. Society gave me a second chance. It started with amazing, incredible people who believed in me, who took me into their families as much as my own family took me back in. The city of San Francisco allowed me to become a volunteer first responder. I joined the fire department as a volunteer. They gave me training in search and rescue and triage and, uh, and, and how to assist emergency responders in the event of a disaster, like an earthquake or a tsunami or, or something, or a terrorist attack or something like that. Other organizations allowed me to be a volunteer. The soup kitchen where I used to stand in line for, for a bowl of vegetable soup and a, a couple of slices of bread, that same soup kitchen allowed me to volunteer serving persons who were struggling with homelessness. Amazing individuals and organizations eventually leading up to a, a wonderful nonprofit called The Five Ventures, which delivers entrepreneur and employment training to currently and formerly incarcerated persons. It's a program through which I became an entrepreneur and I graduated from there's another amazing organization called Hustle 2.0, which uh, serves, uh, they're only in men's prisons right now, but they serve uh, maximum security, some of California's most maximum, most notorious maximum security prisons. And they also teach entrepreneurs and, and employment. Mm-hmm. To circle back to your question, the FBI, so much to their credit, they recognize this. They recognize, even though, even, even though Jackson, I, I, through the course of my addiction, and even afterwards, I would, I would show up at the FBI offices with, uh, with cryptic notes, with my thumbprint at the bottom, saying, dear FBI, please don't follow me anymore. Please help me. Somebody, there's, a, there's a conspiracy against me. And I would take time away from agents who, who had you know, better things to do. I would show up at the FBI office with electronics that I thought were bugged. I would write them all kinds of emails. I mean, I never did anything anonymously, and I never threatened anybody. I was just a... a a desperate person who made a lot of mistakes and allowed myself to to get into states of deep fear. The FBI, so much to their credit, 
saw all of that and then also looked at the work I had done since 2007 to return to becoming a productive member of society. They allowed me to graduate from their Selective Citizens Academy. This is the FBI Citizens Academy. It's a six-week program whereby persons who are leaders and or representatives of their community take a little mini FBI Academy. We learned about things like evidence collection, counterterrorism, uh, organized crime, and how the FBI fulfills its mission, protecting American citizens. From there, I served the FBI. I didn't know this, but the FBI actually does a lot of work uh, combating addiction. Hmm. And they developed a stronger and stronger interest in serving the reentry community. The reentry community meaning people who are, who are released from incarceration, rejoining society. Now, it, it take a step back to say, in no way do we intend the blanket endorsement for all actions taken in the name of law enforcement. No way. We, we know that terrible things are done in the name of law enforcement, terrible, tragic things. In no way are we giving a blanket endorsement to everything that's done on behalf of law enforcement or in the name of law enforcement. No. What I learned to do was to put aside my fear and my paranoia of the FBI and of the San Francisco Police Department and the cops in general. I put all that fear and paranoia aside in favor of focusing on the good things that women and men do who are in law enforcement. And good things meaning uh, giving people like me second chances. Uh, helping homeless people. You know, I met a lot of police officers, a lot of FBI agents who truly are concerned about and take action to serve our sisters and brothers who are returning from incarceration or who are unfortunately out on the streets and homeless. The point is the most unlikely person, me, to ever become an advocate for the FBI is now an advocate for the FBI. The least likely person to form bridges of trust and understanding between law enforcement and our sisters and brothers who are released from incarceration or who are incarceration, who are incarcerated, the least likely person to do this kind of work, me, is doing it, or one of the least likely people. If, if I can do these things, then others can too. If I can come from a point of hearing disembodied voices claiming to be FBI Director Robert Mueller and how he's going to come and kidnap me with a helicopter. If I can come from that point to shaking hands with the current FBI Director, Christopher Ray, being handed a community service award, others can do it too. I'm not saying go out and, and advocate all things FBI now and forever. No. The FBI, like all of us, needs to improve. What I've learned to do is to focus on the good where I can contribute to my communities and I and and, if, and um, that was recognized by law enforcement, and I'm very grateful. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and, and I know that the recovery and things like that is is a, as a lifelong process. So I guess you know, obviously, we've we've talked a lot about your recovery and you know the the paranoid voices that you had heard in the past. So I, I mean, I'm interested to hear exactly where you are now uh, in your recovery and and in I guess in that. Uh, paranoia as well. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a great question. I will still hear, I will still hear disembodied voices from time to time. I will, I will use them as a uh, no longer, you know, it's like uh, Winston Churchill said, uh, a pessimist sees the difficulty in, in every opportunity, an optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty, mm -hmm. right? 
So although I experienced disembodied voices, which to many would be a stigma, I've chosen to use it as a way of inspiring others the way so many others have inspired me. You know, we need to look no further than uh, pages of the Diary of Anne Frank or The Long Walk to Freedom by Nelson Mandela or uh, Martin Luther King's autobiography or any, or, or the works of any, not, and I don't, by no means, so I mean to compare myself to any of them. What I'm saying is in some small way, if I can inspire others via having overcome my challenges, the way great people like Anne Frank and Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King and others inspired me, then my disembodied voices are a great opportunity to do that. I'll still entertain beliefs about government interest in my life. What, you know, it's like having a, a very active imagination, which I've always had kind of pushed a little bit beyond that. So to mm -hmm. me, each day is a wonderful challenge to overcome obstacles, to, uh, to attach whatever meaning I want to obstacles. You know, it's not so much what happens to us in life that matters. What matters is the meaning we choose to attach to it. Yeah. You know, we can, we can look at things as a, there's a saying, I forget who said it exactly, but uh, you know, the most important skill in life is to be able to look at any, any obstacle as an enjoyable challenge. Yeah. No, that, that's sense. what I've learned to do. So disembodied voices. Yeah. I could say it's a stigma. It prevent, it makes me some, uh, some freak. It makes me, you know, the government uh, really is after, you know, I could say these things and, and not, I, I know that there are people who, and their caregivers who struggle with mental health challenges far beyond what, what I struggle with or what I have struggled with. Uh, I'm fortunate in that I have the choice to ascribe certain meanings to my challenges. Now, it's not always easy. And in the past years, I've, I've struggled a great deal with depression. I, I have not gotten out of bed every day singing and saying, yeah, it's another day to, to see life as a beautiful. But, you know, I, I struggle. Uh, I, through, through my struggles, I turn, to, I turn to faith. I turn to belief in some higher purpose. I turn to spirituality. I chose never to take psychiatric medication. Uh, that's just me, nothing, you know, not saying what's right or wrong for anybody else. I was shown a path of meditation, of uh, spiritual beliefs, of service to others, of self-improvement, of fitness, nutrition, um, self-improvement, you know, little things, cold showers. I do cold showers every day. I do a lot of breath work. Um, I, I've just been, I've been shown a path of daily practices, intermittent fasting. I, you know, fast every day. These little things create a foundation that allow me to turn my thoughts away from I'm some freak with disembodied voices and entertaining government that, you know, now I'm not that I can still hear the voices and, and entertain these beliefs, but the meaning I choose to them can be, Hey, I can do something to inspire others in some small way, the way Nelson Mandela inspired me. And all of that allows me to find myself in places like Pelican Bay maximum security prison as a volunteer coaching our brothers who are incarcerated there in how to turn their lives around. And, and our brothers in Pelican Bay State Prison, many of them, probably most, if not all of them, were never given the opportunities that, that I was given in life. Um, you know, my, my choice to ascribe certain meanings to my circumstances allows me to be in places like the FBI headquarters, shaking hands with Director Christopher Ray. Such a great honor. And 13 years ago, man, uh, you know, Jackson, you and I, would, you would want nothing to do with me much less the director of the FBI, you know. 
but by that, I mean, I was in, in no position to be of value to really anyone except, you know, maybe the guy looking to get my last 20 bucks for a, a methamphetamine deal or something like that. So, you know, our thoughts, our, our thoughts have power from Buddha to Shakespeare to Oprah and everywhere in between the successful people have said it. What we think is what we become. Right. No, you know, what I we think is what we become. I agree. Yeah. And I've, I've talked to, to several people who, who struggled with, with mental health issues, not necessarily drug addiction, but mental health issues. And, you know, what, what you said really strikes me uh, as the same thing that they were saying about the best way to, to manage the mental health issues, not necessarily cure it because that's not going to happen, but to manage mental health issues is to create routine, create, you know, the reason why you're getting up, create, you know, the, the way you're going to get through these things. So, um, you know, it was a really good conversation. Um, but I, I want to, to move forward to, to what you were talking about just a little bit ago. And that mean, and that was your, your prison ministry and the, the things that you've done uh, through, through the prison. So if you would kind of tell us just a little bit about, um, you know, your, your work w within prison, the prison system. Yeah, one thing, so I, I started with a group called Toastmasters, which for those who don't know is dedicated to public speaking and leadership. Toastmasters was one of the first places I felt comfortable to talk about my history of drug addiction because the people in Toastmasters were so supportive of me. As I started to be forthcoming outside of the 12-step program, outside of the recovery community of sharing my story, someone in Toastmasters introduced me to a person who worked in criminal justice reform that person introduced me to Defy Ventures, the nonprofit I mentioned. And what Defy does is they take business executives and partner them with persons who are or were incarcerated. Defy has incredible support from companies like Google, LinkedIn, uh, amazing tech firms, and, and many other firms and individuals in the Bay Area and nationwide. What we find is that incarcerated persons and tech executives, they want to interact. The tech executives want to help and be helped by incarcerated persons and incarcerated persons want the access to tech executives. What they don't always have is that common language. They don't have a way to communicate over something in common. So we found entrepreneurism provides that common language. Now all of a sudden, hey, sir, sir we might find a person who's serving a prison stretch well, that person actually is an entrepreneur, you know, on, on not in, in a legitimate business, you know, but uh, having run an entrepreneurial organization. And now the tech executive will help that person transform from illegal activities to using her or his entrepreneurial skills and talent for legitimate businesses. And, and it helps society, too, because uh, when it comes to employment, oftentimes employers we've found will look at a person's history as a predictor of future performance at work, whereas customers of an entrepreneur, they really mostly care about who the person is today. Right. So in many ways, entrepreneurism makes more sense to persons with criminal histories. And entrepreneurism gives persons with criminal histories the skills to perform in employment roles if they so choose. I got into uh, Defy Ventures and from there, another organization we will go and I've spent a few weekends in Pelican Bay, a couple of weekends in Pelican Bay State Prison, a couple in a place called High Desert State Prison, both maximum security, both uh, to, to be incarcerated in Pelican Bay, 
you uh, almost certainly are convicted of violent crime, murder in many cases. You're almost certainly gang affiliated. You've come up through the street gangs that most of us have heard of. In Pelican Bay, the men I've worked with, it's, it's a men's prison. I've served, a lot of them have served in, uh, in solitary confinement, uh, 30 years. 30 years one guy served in solitary confinement. So the, these are men whom have persevered and transformed through some incredibly challenging circumstances. Like we were saying about not giving a blanket endorsement to all things law enforcement, I don't mean to say that everyone who's incarcerated falls into the category of the persons I work with. The persons right. I work with are a percentage whom self-select as having applied themselves very hard to doing the work to become legitimate employees, legitimate business owners, um, contributing members of society. But the ones I've worked with, you know, I'm convinced the, the women and men I've worked with in jails and prison, had they been given the same opportunities as me, many of them would have turned out fine. It would have right. turned out fine. Better than that, look what happened to me. You know, I, I let my life degrade into methamphetamine addiction. You know, whereas when I was a little kid, when I walked out my front door on a summer eve, I could walk uh, a quarter mile down the road to a beautiful swimming hole through the incredible uh, pristine woods. I could go sledding in the winter time down the, the hill in the, the vast snowy field behind my home. People, the women and men I worked with in prison, when they opened their front doors when they were kids, they would find things like uh, a neighbor bleeding to death from a stab wound on the, on the front porch. Instead of walking to a swimming hole, the men and women I've worked with in jails and prison, they would walk to the street corner and be surrounded by the street gang, given the option of either joining the gang or being stopped by the gang. By no means does this excuse the crimes that they were convicted of. By no means does this suggest that the victims of their crimes were not victimized. By no means does this condone criminal activities, such as the criminal activities I partook in when I was struggling with addiction. What we try to do in organizations like, what we do accomplish in organizations like the Five Ventures and Hustle 2.0 is extend a second chance. America, the land of second chances. We make that real the Five Ventures and Hustle 2.0. What we found and what my story illustrates is that second chances, they benefit the receiver, someone like me, but second chances also benefit the giver, society, just as much, if not more. Absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've gotten plenty of congratulations, but you talked all about, you know, wanting to be a writer. So you've done that now. So congratulations with that for sure. That's awesome. Um, so obviously, you know, we, we never know exactly what the future holds, but we, we've talked a lot about your past. So if you would just tell us what, you know, what life looks like now for, for Ed Cressing. Now I'm looking to use my book to help as many people as possible overcome addictions in their lives, to overcome mental health challenges, and to recover. Like we were saying before, you know, overcoming the challenge is – one step, it's a necessary step. What we want to look to do is become our best selves, is to contribute our fullest to our communities, to our families, to our society, is to become happier, to become more and more productive members of society or whatever path we choose. You know, these were the paths for me. They may apply to you in some regard or your path might be different. Whatever your path is, we want to leave addiction behind us 
and get to the, where we ultimately want to get to. We don't want to just be a sober person. Most of us, maybe some of us do, but I think a lot of us, we don't want to just be free from our addiction. We want to be our best selves. We want to help others. We want to contribute. We want to make the world a better place in some way, small or great. Or at least we want to make our household a better place or our relationship a better relationship or our body a, a healthier body, whatever we want to do. That's what my book is inspiring you to do. That's what my work inspires you to do. So readers get a story ultimately in my book that despite incredibly challenging circumstances, recovery and triumph are possible. Your own circumstances, you in the audience right now, your circumstances might be more challenging than mine. You, know, you, might, you might have things worse than I ever did. Yet, if you get something from my story, I hope it's that it is possible through perseverance to overcome some very difficult obstacles. I've been fortunate enough to do it, and I hope my work maybe helps you some way too. Yeah, that, that's, that's powerful words for sure. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. If you would, tell us how we can find that book and how we uh, can connect further with you. The easiest place is to just go on my website, www.edkressy.com. You can buy my book. Uh, you, there's a button you can click, which will take you right to my Amazon page. You can download a free PDF on 10 questions to help someone who might be in recovery from addiction. The PDF will also sign you. You click that free PDF. You'll also get my newsletter, which is coming out. It was coming out weekly. Now it's coming out daily. We're still finding how it's going to bring the best value. Uh, but that's how you can hear from me. You can always contact me via email. You can find me on Facebook. My name's pretty unique. I'm easy to find. Don't hesitate to reach out to me if uh, you feel I can help. Absolutely. Well, I've appreciated your time. Thanks so much for joining us. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks to your audience. And that was Ed Cressy. I hope you learned something from that story. I thought it was a really powerful one. You know, a story of, of redemption from, from where he started in the depths of his addiction to where he finished in inspiring others. I thought it was a really inspiring story. I hope that, uh, you know, if you yourself are, are struggling with addiction, regardless of what that is, or you know someone who is, I, I hope that helps you, um, you know, just, just see that there is a, a positive path forward and a positive way to overcome. Um, without saying much more, thanks so much for being here this week. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll come back next time and... Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.